morning will be from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 40. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do, you doubt, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Many claim that we are living in an age of skepticism. And if you are highly doubtful of that, then you simply contribute to that notion that we are skeptical, that we are highly doubtful and, and we like to question things. In fact, Gallup did a uh, research and they asked Americans for five decades about their confidence levels in traditional institutions like organized religion and governments and biz big businesses and, and banks and healthcare. And what they found was over that span of time, over 50 years or more, that there has been a steady and often significant decline in confidence levels in our traditional institutions. That may not surprise you. And I think many of us could see something like that. We could read uh, research like that and we could say, well, I know why. Here's the reason why. And we probably would all have different ideas and theories and, and probably some really good answers to why that's the case. Certainly, as we think about how much information we have now with the Internet and 24-7 news cycle, with social media, there's so much information out there. And with all of that information also comes what? Misinformation. And so it's hard to know sometimes what is, what is true and what is not true and what is real and what is fake and, and who can you trust? Because if you find something that says one thing, you can look a little bit longer and find something else that says just the opposite. And so it's no wonder that we are cynics, that we are skeptics. You know, with more transparency and with more information, and with less discretion, with cameras and microphones everywhere, with fact-finding and fact-checking, one of the things that we have seen is that we have so much more uh, perspective behind the scenes, don't we? We get to see behind the curtain. I think maybe before we just didn't know all of these things, and so we just trusted. We just took things at face value, and we believed what people told us. And now we get to see... Uh, the bigger picture. We get to see, as they say, how the sausage is made. Speaking of that, I saw an article about the McRib sandwich at McDonald's. It's called the McRib, and McDonald's admitted that, well, it's not really rib meat, it's pork shoulder. And I don't know, if you're like me, I, I, I don't know, I, I feel like I should ask, has anyone eaten one of those? But I don't want to put you on the spot in front of everyone here to confess that. But okay, pork shoulder, that's close to the rib, not, not a huge deal. I mean, what do we expect for fast food anyway, right? But this article exposed the truth. According to this article, there are over 70 ingredients in the McRib sandwich. And many of them are food additives. Many of them are things that are used in other kinds of products that you definitely don't want to eat. And the meat, it's not so much pork shoulder as it is again according to this article it is 
constituted meat. It is restructured meat product that comes from parts like the heart, tripe, and scalded stomach, whatever that is. Can you imagine going to McDonald's and ordering a McTripe? <laughs> a McScalded stomach? It just doesn't sound right, right? So they, they call it the McRib. More information that we have seems to not only expose the truth, but it also, I think, causes us to be more skeptical. But not always, right? Because sometimes more information confirms. It confirms what is being presented, or it confirms what we always thought. As the saying goes, seeing is believing. But what about when it comes to faith in God? Is seeing believing? Think about that. Is seeing believing when it comes to faith in God, faith in Jesus, faith in the word of God? The writer of Hebrews tells us what faith is. He defines faith in chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what? What we cannot see. So if seeing is believing and then faith is believing what we cannot see, how do we merge those two? How do we not become critics and skeptics? How do we not doubt? You see, does more information what we see, what we hear, what we experience, does it increase doubt or does it alleviate doubt in God? In Jesus' day, after he was resurrected from the dead, the disciples around him, they wanted to see. They needed to see. They were skeptical. And they had reason to doubt. And they hear reports that Jesus, who they saw, who was crucified, they hear reports that he has been raised back to life, they want to see. When he was living, Jesus told them this was going to happen. He told them that he was going to die, that he would be raised back to life, but most people didn't believe him. And then when it actually happened, they either forgot what he said about that, or they still just could not get their minds around something so far-fetched. Then where are they left? Do we believe? Do we not believe? We need more information. We need to see for ourselves. And that's what Jesus did. He appeared to many people in his resurrected body. And this body was, was different from his physical body before death, but it wasn't a ghost. It wasn't an immaterial body. Paul writes about the resurrected body in 1 Corinthians 15, this imperishable body. But there was something about his body that, that made him maybe uh, unrecognizable in some sense. And they think maybe when they do see him, he's not real. And they are struggling to believe. They are cynical. They are skeptical. We pick up our text in Luke chapter 24, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? I want us to think today about what Jesus did with their doubts, but more than that, here today, what does Jesus do? What does God do with your doubts? Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, just as he said he would be. And he appears to the people that he has been ministering to and with, 
and they struggle to believe. They struggle to believe what is standing in front of them. They think he's a ghost. And here's the question that Jesus asked, why do doubts rise in your minds? They're afraid, they're startled, they're troubled, they're confused, they have more questions than answers. Last they saw Jesus, he was being dragged away, he was being arrested, he was being tortured, he was being crucified by Roman officials. And then three days later, they hear reports that Jesus is alive again. How's this possible? You see, they don't know what to believe. And before we see how Jesus responds to their doubts, to their, to their, their troubled fears, I want us just to, to sit for a moment in the tension of doubt. We don't like that place. As Christians, we don't like that place of doubt. It makes us uncomfortable. There is a lot of tension in that. And parents, you know, when your kids express doubt to you, what is your response? Usually it is panic. Oh no, you can't doubt. And so we either dismiss those doubts and hope they go away, or we double down on trying to convince them to battle against those doubts. So just for a moment, as we see that these disciples are startled, they're troubled, they don't know what they're seeing, they have doubts, as Jesus says to them, let's just sit in that tension for a moment and feel that tension. Because I want to make it personal. Let me ask you, do you ever have doubts? Do you ever doubt God, the existence of God, the work of God, the sovereignty of God? Do you ever doubt the Bible, the word of God? You read some of the things in the Bible and you just kind of scratch your head thinking, hmm, did that really happen? Is that really true? Getting uncomfortable yet? These kinds of questions make us uncomfortable. There is great tension in doubt. But if you've ever doubted, or if you are currently in a season of doubt or questioning, you are not alone. In fact, over two-thirds of people who claim to be Christians, we're not talking about people in the world, two-thirds of people who claim to be Christians have had or currently have doubts about their faith. So let's go back to Jesus' question. Why do doubts rise in your minds? I think that is a good question. And if you have doubts or you ha are in a relationship with someone who is or has doubts, who is doubting or has doubts, and that is a good question to ask. What is the source of these doubts? Let's explore this. Where are they coming from? What is giving voice to these doubts in your heart and in your mind? Remember what we said earlier? Sometimes the more information we have, the more we see, the more we experience, the more skeptical we become. And so what are we seeing? What are we hearing these days? Well, just look around. So much of what we hear from the world, from culture, from society, tells us to be skeptical, tells us that we're wasting our time, tells us that Christianity and the church and the Word of God and the Bible and God are all just sort of convenient, but not necessarily concrete. Best-selling books are coming out saying that faith in God is a delusion for weak people. Social media often portrays Christians as bitter and bigoted and heartless. And then sometimes Christians or people who claim to be Christians act bitter and bigoted and heartless. And that impacts our faith, doesn't it? 
It makes us question what we're a part of. So-called experts in science and history are given a platform to say that the stories in the Bible are, are simply a myth. Popular art and music keep telling us that truth is relative and that self-fulfillment and self-expression, these are the highest values of one's life. Someone we know or someone we hear about leaves the church, deconstructs their faith, and then uses that process as a platform to put the church on blast. And those within the church hear this and they, they get defensive or they say, you know what, you're making good points I think I'm with you on this. And they begin to dismantle their own faith. You add on top of that personal suffering. How could God let me go through this? The questions of prayer. Is God answering my prayer? I have prayed faithfully. I have righteous people praying for my loved one and nothing is happening. Global injustice in our world and war and so many things. You stack all those things on top of each other, all of those voices speaking into our hearts and our minds. It's no wonder that we doubt sometimes. There are many reasons to be skeptical, many reasons not to believe. The same was true for Jesus' disciples. Maybe the reasons were a little bit different or maybe the sources or the, the channels of those messages were different, but they had reason not to believe. The long-awaited Messiah, he was supposed to deliver the covenant people of God. He was not supposed to die. He was supposed to reestablish the kingdom of God on earth for Israel. He was supposed to get Israel out from under Roman oppression, and he ends up dying by the hand of the Roman oppressors? You see, they had reason to doubt the followers and supporters of Jesus were supposed to, to build up into this army, in many of their minds, a literal army. They were to become this force to be reckoned with. But instead, what happened to many of Jesus' followers? They deserted Jesus. They jumped off the bandwagon. And now, some are saying Jesus is back. That's not possible. That defies the very laws of science and nature. People don't die and then get buried in a tomb and then come out of that tomb and walk around three days later. You see, there were plenty of reasons not to believe. Human logic, basic science, and the voice of the prevailing culture, and everything that they personally witnessed, the information they had, especially over the past three days, said to them, there's no way this is true. But see, there's more to see, isn't there? There's always more to see. Yes, what we see in here can sometimes put our faith on shaky ground. But what we see in here can also put our faith on solid ground. It depends on where you look, doesn't it? It depends on who you listen to. It depends on what information you consume. Because just like the internet, you can find whatever you want to find. If you want information to prove this bias or this point, you can find it. If you want information to prove the very opposite of that point, you can find it. So it really comes down to who do you listen to. Notice what Jesus does with the disciples' troubling doubts. Notice what he does. Notice how he responds. He steps in. 
And he lets them see something else. A counter-narrative to the story that they have been seeing and hearing and feeling personally over the past three days. He knows that they have many reasons not to believe. And he wants to give them a reason, the reason to believe. So back in our text, Luke chapter 24, verse 39. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. You see what Jesus does there? He doesn't dismiss their doubts. He doesn't panic. He doesn't try to talk them out of it. He doesn't rebuke them. He simply extends his nail-scarred hands and his feet to them and says, see for yourselves, feel for yourselves. He reassures them. Back in verse 40. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And this is interesting. Notice what it says here. While they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. That is significant. But back up just for a minute. What does he do? He reaches out, and he lets them touch his hands and his feet, and they're still struggling. They're still struggling to believe that Jesus is there in the flesh or whatever form of flesh this is. And it says that they struggle because of what? It's such a weird way to say it, because of joy and amazement. This wasn't a stubborn refusal to accept the evidence in front of them. This was a, this is too good to be true moment. That's what this was. Have you ever had a moment like that with God? Where you see the hand of God work in your life and you say, this is too good to be true. I mean, isn't that the very heart of the gospel message? Something that many in the world struggle to believe and yet when you believe that Jesus did live and die for your sins and was resurrected from the grave to take away your sins, to give you eternity with God, it is too good to be true. And that's sometimes what people in the world say, what cynics and critics say. That's just too convenient for you. That's too good to be true. Because of joy and amazement, they still struggled to believe. But I think it's significant what Jesus did. After he lets them feel his hands and his feet, what does he do? He asks for something to eat. That seems odd, doesn't it? Jesus, are you hungry? I mean, is this, can th can't this wait? No, he is asking for something to eat to prove a point. What? That he is in this resurrected body. That he is not a ghost. That he's not a vision. That he's not a figment of their imagination. Because ghosts don't eat food and Jesus in this resurrected body ate the food he was real it was believable it was undeniable back in our text as we continue verse before he said to them this is what I told you while I was still with you everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses the prophets and the Psalms then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures he told them, this is what it is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. 
you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. You see, with Jesus' reassurance comes his calling. Just like the call narratives of the Old Testament, when God called men and women for a special job to, to lead or to serve in some way, he often gave them a sign, some visible proof that he was calling them, that he would be with them. And here we see the same thing. Jesus isn't just interested in proving that he is real. He wants the fact that his resurrection is real to generate a response. There is work to be done on the other side of the cross and empty tomb. And so today, let me just tell you, if you have doubts, if you sometimes struggle and question, that doesn't make you a bad person. I think that seems obvious, but I think you need to hear that. That doesn't make you a bad person. Jude 1.22 says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Isn't that what Jesus did? He didn't rebuke them. He didn't dismiss their, their questions, their doubts. He was merciful to them. He walked alongside them. He met them where they were in their doubts. You see, the truth is, doubt can be the path it can be the path to a deeper faith. Asking questions, seeking truth, wrestling with some of those big questions and those big issues, these are good things. Before I mention, as a scenario, someone deconstructing their faith, I don't know if you've heard that phrase recently. It's, it's sort of the buzzword in, in much of the religious world of people leaving the truth and deconstructing their faith and and to be honest that's not all a bad thing now we don't want people leaving the church but deconstruction is not necessarily a bad thing because what it says is I'm going to look at how my faith was put together and I'm going to see if I need to take it apart and rebuild it the problem is what are we using what lens are we using what process are we using to deconstruct and rebuild and that's sometimes where we get off off track but questioning, that's a good thing. Asking hard questions, seeking truth, that's a good thing. And so maybe doubt can be the pathway to a deeper faith. But here's the warning. In that journey, in that questioning, in that search, don't just listen to the narrative of the skeptical world. Open your eyes and your ears to hear what God wants to show you, to reveal to you. Maybe it just sounds too good to be true. In some ways it is. In many ways it is. That's the nature of incomprehensible grace. You say, well, if I could just, if I could just see with my own eyes, if I could just get a visible sign, if I could just, if God could just, you know, put something that was undeniable in front of me, then I'd be on board. I'd be fully on board. I would believe. I would never doubt again. Is that true? Many in Jesus' day had that. They saw sign after sign. They saw miracle after miracle. And yet, many of them still did not fully believe. You see, the counter story was so loud. The counter story and their preconceived ideas and the prevailing culture, it was all so loud, it was just deafening to hear what God was saying to them. 
Of course, one of Jesus' disciples is remembered. He is the poster child for doubt, Thomas. You remember Thomas needed to see. He needed to see for himself unless I see with my own eyes, unless I touch him with my own hands, I will not believe. And what did Jesus do? Again, he did not rebuke him. He did not dismiss him. He did not panic. He met him in that place of doubt and he reassured him. And what was Thomas's response? He was no longer a skeptic. John tells us in John chapter 20, verse 28, here's his response. My Lord and my God. He said, I believe. What a blessing Jesus gave Thomas, wasn't it? It was such a blessing that he let him touch his nail-scarred hands, that he let him see him in his resurrected body. You say, man, if that was me, I want to be in that spot. But I want you to keep reading this story with Thomas because what Jesus told Thomas next, I don't think was for Thomas's sake. I think it was for your sake and my sake. Here's what Jesus said to Thomas after that in verse 29. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about you. He's talking about me. We haven't had the wonderful and painful privilege of touching Jesus's nail-scarred hands. But we choose to believe without seeing with our own eyes his resurrected body. But that doesn't mean there isn't much still to see. Do you remember what Jesus said back in our text in Luke 24? Do you remember the first word that he said to his disciples? Look, verse 39, look. Look at my hands and my feet, look. So let me ask you today, what are you looking at? I think that is such a critical question, especially if you're in this season of exploration and maybe even in doubt, what are you looking at? And I'm not saying that in a way of stop looking. I'm saying, where is it you're looking? Who are you listening to? What are you reading? Who are you talking to? Because just like we said, with the internet, you can find whatever you want to find. You can find someone to tell you whatever you want to hear. And you can find a skeptical world that seems to put enough truth in this argument that sounds sort of reasonable. And if you're open to that and you already have questions and the seeds of doubt, that argument just waters those seeds and that doubt continues to grow. Let me just encourage you to look and to listen and to learn. Have those conversations. Read those things. Talk to those people and learn from those things. But don't lose sight of Jesus because there is more to see. There is more to hear. There is always more to see and hear. Seeing is believing. That, that may be true. I think it is many times. It's what Thomas said. I need to see to believe. That's basically what the disciples said. 
They had doubts. Jesus said, why do you have these doubts? Where do they come from? Here, touch my hands. So seeing is believing may be true, but for people of faith, maybe it's better said a different way. Maybe we should turn those words around and say believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. When you have questioned and searched and scrutinized and you still have unanswered questions, which is the nature of faith, isn't it? If you had all of your questions answered, why would you need faith? But after you have searched and questioned and scrutinized and you have still unanswered questions and yet you choose to believe, you choose to believe, that belief affects how you see what you see and how you interpret what you see. Paul gives us an example of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross, he holds up the cross. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, wait a second. The cross can't be foolishness and power. He says, no, no, inherently, you're right. But how are people seeing it? The people who choose not to believe the people who choose to listen to the narrative as of a skeptical world that doubts the existence of God, they see the cross as simply a foolish symbol that weak and unenlightened people use to make them feel better. It's just foolishness. It's a waste of time. And yet those who believe, they see it as what it is, the power of God at work in the world to do something so miraculous, to do something that none of us can do, to do something that all of us need to remove our sins, to give us eternity with God, to let heaven come down from earth. That's what the cross is. It is the intersection of heaven and earth. We want to see a sign. We want to see somehow spiritual collide with the physical so I can see, so it's tangible, so it's visible. That's what the cross is. So believing is seeing. Sometimes seeing is believing. And sometimes we need to believe to really see. So this week, here's the challenge for all of us. Amid all the reasons you have to doubt, amid all of those reasons, and there are plenty, look for reasons to believe. Be open to the Spirit's leading I think there will be times this week, and I want you to look for them, times this week when Jesus is saying to you that one word, look, look. Open your eyes, open your ears. Well, that's just coincidence. Well, that's just the way things work. Well, that was, that was fortunate, or that was this, or that was that. We can write that off, we can explain that. But believing is seeing some of those things for what they may be, the hand of God at work in our world, in your own life. Him saying to you, look, look. So as you live your life this week, I can assure you, you're going to have conversations. You're going to watch and consume media. 
You're going to read things that are going to cause you to question, to doubt. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Ask those questions. The, the word of God can hold up to scrutiny. We don't have to, we don't have to protect it from being questioned. I think, I think God is wise enough to allow his word to hold up to the scrutiny that the world can give it, that any of us can give it. And so ask those questions. But in that process and in that search and in those conversations, remember there's always more to see. So look. Look for reasons to believe. And let those confirm and strengthen your faith. And remember what Jesus said to them? It wasn't just so you will believe. Jesus wasn't just saying, here, let me prove it to you. He was saying, this is real. And because this is real, there is work to be done. The preaching of the forgiveness of sins, the preaching of repentance, the message a world needs to hear. And so rather than arguing with a skeptical world, let's share Jesus with them. Let's show them the love of Jesus. If we can help you on your journey, let us do that. Let us encourage you. Let us pray for you. If today you're ready to give your life to Christ, to make that commitment of surrendering your life and, and letting, letting the, the, the name of Jesus, the power of God, letting that shape how you think and how you live as you surrender your life and take on his life. That's what baptism is about. That's what surrender is about. That's what making a commitment in faith is about. It's about dying to self and taking on a new life in Jesus. If you want to do that today, don't wait. If you need to respond, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. Let's stand together.